out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of... Bruce Ravensmoreland, or Bruce Moreland, um, who I spoke to very recently. He was in the band The Wall of Voodoo, plus The Weirdos, Nervous Gender, Concrete Blonde, as well as various solo projects as well. So we'll get, we'll, we'll delve into all that, all those details. Just a heads up, um, the interview takes place over several days for various reasons. One is that um, Mark had just had the COVID jab and was starting to feel a little bit queasy or lightheaded. So we had to stop it there and then we pick it up the next day or the day after. I don't know. It's a couple of weeks ago. My memory's not that good. Anyway, look, after several minutes of casual chat, um, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Bruce, tell us more. Tell us now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it really started, uh, we were, you know, we were born, you know, I mean, we, we, we had a single mother who we didn't have a dad. He left before I was even born. And my mom was only, uh, you know, 18 years older than 18, 19 years older than me and my brother. We were one year apart and she, you know, liked music, but she liked, you know, she listened to James Brown and, and, uh, Marvin Gaye, I mean, a lot of the early soul stuff, but she, you know, really kind of got us into music too. And so in the sixties, we started this, I mean, our really first introduction and the stuff we gravitated to was the psychedelic scene, bands like the Seeds and Electric Prunes and Paul Revere and the Raiders, stuff like that, uh, you know, Stones and, and Beatles to a certain extent. Um, uh, so, you know, that kind of got us, but but we were really kind of gravitated towards the, the fuzzy stuff, the, the psychedelic stuff. Um, and, uh, and then I think when Jimi Hendrix came around, we just really fell over, head over hills over Jimi Hendrix and that kind of sound that, you know, got heavy with the, you know, crazy guitar and stuff like that. Uh, that was kind of our first introduction. And then um, when we started playing music, uh, you know, I mean, we were playing back then when we were kids, um, you know, messing with instruments. I started out as a drummer, actually. and My brother was always on guitar. Uh, so, and then we started, you know, and then after that, that psychedelic scene and stuff like that, it was more like, you know, the early 70s. And uh, we started really liking, you know, some of the British uh, underground stuff, uh, Ganograph Generator, stuff like that, uh, uh, you know, Roxy Music, Eno, all that stuff. And, and so when we really came in on musically, it was kind of the very early glitter era. And, uh, you know, the arty music and glitter era. And, and we, we, you know, we had a band called the Sky People. And we, you know, I, I shaved my eyebrows like Spock on Star Trek and did a pointy, you know, hair thing. And, you know, we were all gl- glittered up. And, uh, and, and that was kind of our first big, you know, where we were playing on stages and, and getting a lot of people um to our shows and stuff like that. So yes, and did sort I, of and did playing an instrument come quite easily to you? Were you somebody who picked it up and and sort of you know found it sort of relatively straightforward? Well, yeah, neither me and Mark uh, had any um, any training or any 
I mean, I can't even, I can't read. We, neither of us can read music. Uh, can, even if he asked me where the note is on my bass or on my guitar, or my keyboard, I'm like, uh, have to count it out and stuff like that. It was never about uh, technical stuff with us. It was about feel and sound. Um, so I think that we, uh, had very little training. So in that sense, yeah, maybe came easy to us. We were kind of arty kids. Uh, so artistic, we could, the abstract and, and things like music was easier to get, wrap our heads around than, you know, mathematics and stuff like that. So, so fairly easy. Yeah. We were just self-taught. I, like I said, uh, Mark was guitar. Uh, I was drums and, and then he, have convinced me to switch to bass because no one in the neighborhood played bass guitar. So yes, and what was yeah, your sorry. and how was your sort of mum? Was she enjoy? You know, was she quite amazed with her two boys who were so musically, you know, adapt at this? Yeah, she well, she thought it was she thought it was pretty cool, definitely. Um, you know, but she you know she never thought we could do anything with it. Just like you know, most parents thought it was something fun we were going to do on the side. But yeah, she was pretty pretty happy. For us and pretty pretty amazed that we had some early success like that yes absolutely and were you kind of aware of that that point where because because i suppose you were a bit i suppose you were probably about 12 when the late 60s kind of finished so that that mm-hmm. that sort of decade you were probably that age when i was i don't know i suppose i was just slightly aware of glam but only in sort of the idea of the superficiality of it more than the sort of political sort of i don't think glam yeah. really had politics where you know the 60s in america and and the uk had such a lot of cultural sort of significance and political undertones whereas glam was much more about yeah. just having a good time i just wondered if you yes. picked up on some of that kind of I suppose, you know, the, the sort of the ideals of the Woodstock generation and then sort of, you know, the, and the, and there was also a lot yeah. of kind of, I suppose, theatrical groups sort of beginning. Like there was a band, um, a combo or a group called the Coquettes from sort of the West Coast who'd done various things and hung out with Andy Warhol and stuff like that. Did you sort of pick up on that later on in life or did that just kind of pass you by? Um, the, yeah, the, that bit, the cockettes, I didn't really, I wasn't even really aware of. Um, I, uh, I, I think as far as the political nature of the sixties, we were, we were pretty young, but we were raised by a very liberal mother and who was very passionate about politics. So, um, so I think some of the ideas of, of that, you know, kind of hippie generation were already kind of there for us and, and, uh, so, so, but, but, you know, we were probably just a little too young to be, you know, adopting too much of a political stance or anything. Um, but, uh, with, you know, when that early glitter era, that, uh, the glam era came in, it was just, it was right when we were coming of that age, probably 13, 14 years old. And, um, and, uh, it just really, the, the luck, the sound, I mean, probably our first introduction with the whole the glam thing was, you know, was Alice Cooper, um, was one, you know, to me was probably like the first introduction to that luck and style. And I just really, I mean, I was a huge fan of Alice Cooper and, um, and then, uh, you know, then, then, but then the bands, the, the sound and the, the uh, creativity of bands like Roxy Music with Eno and stuff like that uh, really, you know, we really gravitate towards that musically. Yes, but at that stage, though, and, your bro- and Velvet Underground too. 
Yes, well, that that sort of sort of comes into one's consciousness eventually. But then, because interestingly, be, your brother was the guitarist and you were the drummer at the time. Was it the case that yeah. you just kind of was there any particular drummer that you started to sort of gravitate towards as a sort of you know like inspiration? Yeah, well, I mean, back in 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 my in that time, it was all about <laughs> trying to be like Ginger Baker or Keith Moon. You know, that's that's kind of the drumming and then and Ainsley Dunbar who played with the Mothers of Invention uh, were kind of the, the drummers that I really gravitate towards but I, I mean I, I never really got that good on drums so so switching to bass wasn't like wasn't heartbreaking to, or anything so uh, yeah Yes, that was quite well. It's interesting because because I suppose I was about ten, eleven when glam hit. So seeing Alice Cooper performing "Schools Out" was just such an amazing anthem at the moment at that time. Because obviously, school always felt like such a drag. And then seeing people like Gary Glitter, who obviously gets a bit disgraced later on, but you know, musically, you know, it's very dramatic and and sort of I'm 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 still feel a bit sorry for his band because obviously. You know, they, they were great musicians and they created some amazing anthems. But luckily it was David seeing David Bowie in Space Oddity. So he was my first single and my first love with, uh, yeah, Space Oddity was fantastic. And the B-side oh, had yeah, Changes was... and Velvet Goldmine on the, yeah, on the on the flip side, which I always thought B-sides were fantastic. But obviously from then it was all a bit of a downhill journey, really. Yeah, I actually, I actually yeah, I have that single, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, those, those, were, those were huge. I mean, yeah, that changed every thing for us uh that early uh early david bowie stuff even from you know man who sold the world and life on mars and and uh all that stuff it was just uh i mean it just it really spoke to me it just it really it really changed things up and the the, the you know the the tight smart sound uh you know uh with trevor boulder and mick ronson and 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 company uh woody woodmansey it was just it was such a great sound and then just the style was just uh, you know it was just it really was nothing like it it was amazing yes and then it was kind of interesting because the 70s kind of blows up into this kind of quite a weird world because i had a brother who was seven years old and he was really into prog rock and then he then he got into a bit of heavy metal with deep purple and black sabbath um so i got well yeah i was i was there to we me and mark had our had our time with that too i mean you know but just before that glitter era, you know there was the, that 70s stuff and and we definitely black sabbath was a huge band for us we just that sound really spoke to us we were always kind of uh alternative kind of dark you know our style was kind of alternative and dark even in the you know the early late 60s early 70s um so when black sabbath came out you know we weren't really big led zeppelin fans anything like that because you know it's like most of the you know they were so popular and they were so easy to like me me and mark was like yeah give me something else give me something even darker than this so when black sabbath came out and to a certain extent deep purple too um they were just it was was great we saw we saw you know dozens of shows of black sabbath and deep purple and early fleetwood mac with mick with uh peter green wow you saw that you saw the peter green period that is very yeah, amazing. Huh? 
You know, I have to say, because um, this sounds really cheesy, but they used to, there's a band called The the Rumours of, of Fleetwood Mac, who I've seen a few times at the theatre. It's the closest you can uh-huh. get. And, th- and they do kind of two sets. They do a Peter Green set and then a, a Rumours kind of era set. And um, oh. I mean, I have to say I quite like both because I grew up listening to Rumours, so I still have a soft spot. Yeah. But when they do the Peter Green years and... Uh, Oh, uh, the green is the Marish, um, Manarishi. I think green that was... Manarishi and oh well. And oh well, I mean, yeah, um, black yes. magic woman. It is quite stunning. It's really quite an amazing moment. So yes, Peter Green. He was the sort of the guy who, and at the I think in the sixties, Fleetwood Mac was selling more albums than the Beatles in some period. So I think, wow. and I've always remember I love the Pete, uh, the Fleetwood Mac story because when you hear John McVie and Mick Fleetwood talking about. Green playing guitar, just saying the power he had was extraordinary. But then seeing him when he became, you know, an acid casualty was the most tragic thing that you could imagine. Because he know. just, he that just was didn't. Horrible. It just didn't sort of and, cover. And the fact that I think um, um, uh, Mick was it Mick Fleetwood that wrote the "Someone's Going to Get Kicked in the Head Tonight," when, you know, great punk anthem that he actually wrote that song. That the was it the Rosillos played. It was uh, yes. Yeah, I think there was some sort of connection there. It was a pretty amazing history of that band. I know, I know. When they when they ever talk about that, there's a party they go to in Germany apparently where you know they get heavily spiked. Well, Peter does with acid to, with these kind of quite freaky bunch of people that he never was mm-hmm. the same again. You know, you can see they lost a good friend that night as well as. That, I know. That I, I did see that in the documentary that that we were talking about right there. It was very very sad thing that exact moment where that happened yes it's um yes the, the hazards of rock and roll luckily no one yeah. <laughs> everyone learned from that and it all went well after, ever since no they didn't it's rock and roll isn't it but yes it's interesting mm-hmm. with black sabbath because when you're young the lyrics of sabbath bloody sabbath and paranoid you realize that um it wasn't ozzy who wrote them i think it was the bass player actually um, but they were yeah. just epic songs. And then you had Tony Ioni, who was his, his kind of guitar sound. That, uh, yeah, there was, there was something very appealing when you're 13, singing those lyrics about, yeah, yeah. there we go. It was a good one. But then, uh, obviously, at that point, you had the New York Dolls coming along. And then you had in this country people like, um, I don't know, Doctors of Madness, who were quite a small band, but they were quite influential. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember them. I liked them. I loved Slade. And, of course, the Stooges were were a huge influence on on me and my brother, too. But, uh, but yeah, I love bands like uh, the bands you're you're speaking of right now, Uh, uh, even Budgie and bands like that, you know, that were early, you know, uh, heavy, early heavy trios and stuff like that. Yes, and then you have this kind of funny little kind of moment of like with sort of Malcolm McLaren almost being in two camps at once. You know, he'd come to New York and had worked with the New York Dolls and then sort of kind of put together the Sex Pistols. So there's a New York kind of punk scene, and I'm sure there's kind of L.A. as well, but then you get the London punk scene, which is quite different because there's based a lot in those bands like Dr. Feelgood and that kind of pub rock kind of world that that happened as well. But then you get the Buzzcocks and then bands like the Stranglers and then Susan the Banshees. Did you, were you, even though you were quite young, did you pick up on all that kind of uh, excitement? Oh, absolutely. We were listening to that. Because right about, right about that time, uh, we were, we had the band The Sky People, which is the glitter band. 
uh, heavy glitter band. It was almost like uh, Black Sabbath meets the Spiders from Mars, uh, and with a little bit, a few little pieces of Prague in there as well, you know, from our Van der Graaff generator uh, and Peter Hamill uh, roots as well. Um, so, so right. I mean, and we, but at the same time, we were, you know, the Dolls were a huge band for us, Stooges and stuff like that. So when we heard about the Sex Pistols, it kind of had the sound we were already, you know, liked with the Stooges and, and bands like that you speak of, Slade, stuff like that. Um, but it had the the attitude and the and a, and a whole new look. And I think people, I mean, Glitter had run its course. There was no luck, and me and Mark were always looking for a luck. You know, we 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 thought that was it went hand in hand with rock and roll. You know, to have a, a tight luck or something unique or different to stand out because you want to make a statement with your music and your visuals. So when we saw the magazines of the first band, you know, punk bands, Damned, uh, uh, um, Sex Pills and stuff like that, it's like, oh, we need to make our hair shorter now. So, <laughs> so I mean, almost immediately within the same month that the Sex Pistols came out and, and stuff, we had our hair cut and we were already uh, cutting out any lead solos in our songs and and uh, and and we we grew up in a uh, just outside of downtown los angeles it's about um i guess for you would be about 16 kilometers well, east of downtown los angeles and uh so right and then when the punk scene came around we, i was probably about 16 years old uh 1617 we decided to I, I had just bought a van and an old van and we decided to just and it was going to break down so we decided just to break it down let it break down in hollywood and we just lived out of my van and panhandled for money and uh and then i got invited down from this this by this band called the dogs that were from detroit um they were living in los angeles and they were a, a stooges type band same from the same Ilk is the Stooges and MC5. In fact, they knew those, those people, and uh, and they brought us down to the rehearsal place, which is at the Mask, which is the legendary LA punk club. Um, so we went down there, and I met Brendan Mullen, who's a Scot Scottish fellow, and uh, he uh, took me in, and almost immediately we just started looking. For, living down there and looking for bands and then i landed in the band the weirdos and my brother landed in the punk band the skulls so we were right from the start of the punk thing that we just did an about face from glitter and went head on yes and it's amazing because 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 you mentioned the mask which is kind of one of those venues that became pretty prolific with sort of putting on those bands like the Dixies, uh, Dixies, not the mm -hmm. Dickies and X and the Germs and bands like that. Dickies, so yeah. did you find yourself kind of, because you were at the perfect age of, of kind of surfing a kind of a musical, it was almost a musical zeitgeist, wasn't it? Because in that period, because every scene I've noticed, it takes a few years and then it all gets very tacky, doesn't it? I, I did an interview with a guy who was in a band yeah. called... Eater, who were a really young band from from London. I and, remember them, yeah. And uh, 
And by the age, I mean, he was, they were, they, they were sort of, they had to shoplift all their good uh, equipment because they were so young, they had no money. That's but, what I did, so did I. <laughs> they had to case the joint when they were still at school. They, they went and saw when uh-huh. the, the bloke locked up the shop. So they, they were there and they were only young kids and they managed to nick a couple of guitars and run like hell. And that was the start of their band. And they yeah. put on the first gig in about 76. And they said by 77, you could, you know, in 78, you know, the punk scene had really changed because you suddenly had to have a particular look, which was like basically like Sid Vicious. And you thought, actually, I don't really want to just be gobbed on anymore by all these people who are sort of not weekend Mm -hmm. punks, but just like this is not really what you thought punk was going to be. Um, and you had to have a sort of particular yeah. outfit. So obviously, that that you know, the mask, the club in LA, must have been quite a sort of a bouncing scene at the time. Yeah, it was it was crazy. It was just a, a dark, dungy, sleazeball uh, basement under a porn theater, uh, and it was just just magical. Though I mean, it smelled bad. It was dark. Uh, it was it actually used as a bomb shelter for the Cold War and stuff like that. But it was, yeah, it was amazing. But I, I totally, well, getting back to your point, it, it was a magical time. There was just a such a mix of freaks that went down there, uh, gay, straight, older, younger. You, you didn't really have to have a look. You just didn't have to look like everybody else. And, um, you know, it was just thrift store wear and, and you know, hodgepodge of clothes, all th- modeled clothes, all thrown thrown together. Yes, and, and same with the music musical styles. There was people who were you know heavily influenced by Captain Beefheart, by Can, by uh, uh, Stooges, by uh, Velvet Underground, jazz. There was a lot of jazz influence. Uh, so it was, it was just. It was really unique. The bands like Black Randy and the Metro Squad, the Screamers, uh, who weren't really punk. They were just something else, but they just fit the time. And then exactly what you're saying, it's kind of got dumbed down once the, the new generation people went to, became a little safer, once the word got out and people said, well, maybe I can do this now. It's, I can, now that's, you know, the word's not so passe. So then it brings those uh, that other element of people who just don't really get what it was about originally and turn it into what they thought it was about, and and then it just it took on a whole different life. It came, became a little more rigid, exactly in the style and the sound you could have. It became uh, even more violent because some of the you know the kids that were coming in were more like jocks and stuff, people who would wouldn't have dreamed doing it in the first place when it first came out but once it got a little safer they thought they could somehow fit into it and and uh so yeah it just that's exactly why we we jumped out of our punk respective punk rock bands the skulls and the weirdos at the time and started wall of voodoo Yes, well, good good idea. Did you kind of, because at a certain age, everyone loves a bit of Pink Floyd and uh, wish you were here. Did you ever go through a little bit of a Floyd phase as well? Because I know you obviously... Got oh, in- yeah, absolutely. Especially this, yes, especially the Sid Barrett era. I mean, I love them. I mean, I still listen to the Sid Barrett records all the time. Um, Lucifer Sam and stuff like just amazing stuff. Uh, but even, even in the beginning, once... Right after uh, Sid Barrett had left the band, I went and saw them when they were, came here in the in the very early 70s. And uh, yeah, I, I, there was a little, 
brief time that I was really into Pink Floyd. Yes, and I, and and obviously, and I suppose everyone mentions this, but I do remember. I mean, in the UK, we only had three, you know, TV channels, which you know doesn't. Um, yes, we didn't have much choice, and only even less on the radio choice, really, Radio One and Radio Two. I suppose there was Radio Three and Four, mm. but but generally, you know, people went between Radio One and Radio Two. Your parents went for Radio Two. And um, but then, you know, so we had, you know, the spaghetti westerns, which were sort of, you know, like the Bond films. You know, you you all watched them because there wasn't a there was not much else on. But also they were fantastic. And they the music and the style of those films are ensconced in anybody in, over the age of 50. So when did you suddenly yeah. find those kind of coming into your aura? Well, just like you, we, we you know, we we enjoyed the soundtracks and we were back at the time. So because they were so influential movies in our life, I think the music just kind of stuck with us. And, and although like it wasn't when you heard that music, you thought I have to play that music because we were pretty young and we were, you know, doing other things, uh, you know, glitter, rock, uh, stuff, punk stuff. But, but, Right when around that time when we got into it was just I guess you would call it the post punk era the couple of years after the punk scene started uh, we started trying to think of outside the box like something that's just you know to try to get out of that box that punk put us in and back and kind of a, a mix of what punk taught us about stripping down music and and you know the attitude mixing that in with the, the styles that we, you know, kind of grew up with, the, the uh, things we heard, the Spaghetti Westerns, the, the bands we liked, you know, the early, you know, Eno, uh, the 60s psychedelic stuff, uh, Stooges and stuff like that. So we were bringing those kind of sensibilities into it. And so, and, and then, and so not, everything was back on the table, including country music. And we were, you know, we, we, as kids watched Johnny Cash and, and his specials on TV here. And we, even though we didn't like most of the people that were on there, but when Johnny Cash played or some of the really cool uh, country people he had on their plate, it was, it was great. And so, uh, so we just kind of, we just let everything ride on Walla Voodoo and just, just all, all styles, including classical music. I listened to a lot of Beethoven and stuff like that. And I think on our first record, Especially it comes out in songs like The Passenger, where I did the do 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 It was very, very, you know, orchestra like, uh, it was a very symphonic type of sound. Um, so even in there a bit, yes, because it's interesting. Because, um, a couple of months ago, I did an interview with, um, uh, Hunt Sells, who was in the you know Iggy Pop band when they did the the Passenger mm -hmm. and and the famous Lust for Life kind of period, and I know he his musical background was one of real jazz. He just loved jazz drumming, and you know he learned to be a really good drummer. And his dad actually was Soupy Sells, who I didn't realize the yeah, TV uh -huh. comedian. So um, him and his brother created you know Iggy's great sort of rhythm section for that period, which was produced by David Bowie. Did that kind of have an quite an influence because because again it had such an iconic rhythm you know that especially the soundtrack the passenger oh yeah that that album was huge i mean i don't know what person in in the music scene or in into you know underground music wouldn't just just take that album and and just 
and incorporate in anything they were doing into their lives and, and have it, you know, amateurized into their, their music style and stuff like that. It was just one of the most brilliant albums ever recorded. Just, you know, uh, it was just a beautiful album. And the way Hunt Sills played drums and the, the jazz influence comes out, not only on his beats, but just the sound, that kind of open tom-toms and open sound was very jazz-like where you just, let the overheads take over, overhead microphones take over. Yes, it was amazing. Now, so with, with sort of, on, on a sort of slightly simplistic level, you know, we had sort of the punk period, which was the kind of the early time. And then things, as with most most kind of scenes, it does kind of start to sort of get a bit tacky quite quickly and you have to sort of move this to the next point, which is kind of the post-punk world of, you know, it was Public Image Limited and Magazine and then the Gang of Four and Shriek Back, bands like that. Mm-hmm. And... And then sort of as the early 80s appeared, you know, there'd been quite a scene in Liverpool, especially around a club called Eric's with uh, people like Deaf School. And then you had Bill Drummond and members of, I suppose, what became known as Frankie Goes to Hollywood and the Ian Brody of the uh, Lightning Seeds and Julian Cope. So it kind of the, by the early 80s, there was this kind of movement almost to a, a sort of what one recalls now indie pop. Kind of this is this is my, my simplistic take of it. I mean, obviously, this is all the UK kind of stuff. But then, you know, yeah. from from the eighties, you know, we start to sort of change because, you know, I suppose most scenes get a bit tired, and 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 suddenly you have big people like you know you two come on big country, and and then it, there's another band called the Chameleons who were fantastic from Manchester, and then you had the yeah. Smiths. Did you start to sort of also? sort of sense kind of um, a kind of a musical shift as well as the 80s approached yeah yeah i did i mean i i felt i I felt it was getting um, prettier more the sound was getting a little prettier a little more dark melodic more textured uh, the productions were getting much higher uh, like the wall of voodoo uh, pr- productions of the first couple of albums were pretty minimalistic and i think uh, that was the early, the very early post-punk scene was very minimalistic, even in production. And then I think as the '80s started, productions got big, the, the you know big, big studio sounds, big uh, reverbs, textured, a lot of layers and textures in the music, synthesizers, keyboards, uh, mixed with guitars and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, I, and I totally felt there was. A, coming along there yeah yes because a few weeks ago i did an interview with um dear old doctor and the medics um who oh yeah who suddenly found themselves being signed to irs records who was your label wasn't it the your um, <clears throat> yes with was it the copeland miles copeland Stuart copeland's brother and um he said he was quite a sort of an amazing character because when I don't know, it was all to, it was all to do with kind of record labels and one label being bought by another label, and then suddenly he found himself. He was saying that um, you know suddenly Miles was was there in the sort of listening to the album and started doing one of those kind of massive rants saying we need a fucking single. Or something. Oh my god, this is, this is parallels exactly <laughs> my experience in Wall of Voodoo with Miles Copeland. That is so funny that you're saying that. And <laughs> yeah. we, I, I just did it. They're, they're doing a documentary right now. On it. It's done, but they're just, it hasn't come out yet called We Were Once Rebels about IRS records. This right. is exactly the experience that I, that I uh, shared in there was, was that, you know, in the beginning, Miles and, and company were, you know, very, you know, just 
wanted to be a record company, you know, let this this new music uh, kind of mature on its own and kind of hands off approach. And and then you know, and then they got picked up by A and M Records or 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 wouldn't actually was actually more when they got picked up by MCA uh, or Universal Music that they really started to uh would they start showing up in the re- recording studios you know, where they hadn't before and they'd be in there for several hours wanting to hear everything and then trying to put, interject their opinion saying this and that and then it got even to the point where when I left the band in Wall of Voodoo in 82 which was exactly this where Miles uh, thought that I was a little too dark for the band and you know I did have a, some drug habits and stuff like that and I had a darker look in the band and I didn't want to go along with normals and the sound the, sound, the music that I was writing was more the more darker stuff the more aggressive stuff in Wall of Voodoo and he didn't think that was commercial enough for me almost started a coup to have me removed from the band and then we just mutually said uh-uh, I'm out of here and it kind of tied in with kind of this you know you know it was kind of more attached to his coup started with with Stan because he Miles thought Stan was you know the guy you know that he should uh nurture in Wall of Voodoo that you know, how a lot of bands think that the people think the lead singers are the writers and everything about the band. And in the case of Wall of Voodoo, it wasn't further from the truth. Uh, so, <laughs> yes. but, so the, yeah. Well, it was quite, it was quite funny because, because um, I can't quite remember his real name, but you know, the doctor, uh, doctor, um, doctor and the medics, medics. The medics, that's the name. Yes, he he just said that they sort of were quite a serious band, and then this kind of experience with you know this guy Miles being quite animated, as if he was kind of in a show, kind of putting it on for the audience, kind of kind of throwing a wobbly and him thinking. And the rest of the band had gone out drinking, and then sort of came back and said, "How did it all go?" And he said, "Well, you know, we got to get a single." And that's when they did "Spirit in the Sky." It's like, okay, we'll just do this song. We don't really like it. It's not really our right. sound. But then that kind of wrecks the band because it's like then they said, "Great, we've got to hear." And it's like, yeah, but that's not really us. It's like we did that just because you've made us go and do another record. And but it kind of gives them the one-hit wonder exactly. kind of problem which then kind of <laughs> wrecks their career and they become you know a bit of a novelty band but they didn't really want to do that so um it's a kind of a, yeah so there you go the wonderful world of the manager yes it's quite interesting yeah. you had the same experience then because at the same time because because it was interesting because in in Athens Georgia you had that whole world that was kind of uh, quite another different sort of musical world which had um, people like the B-52s and Pylon and then early R.E.M. And they were, again, they had a kind of quite a lot more of an earthy kind of country American sound. But on saying that, you know, obviously the B-52s had that other sort of side to them which was a 50s kind of, you know, I suppose part of that. Yeah, I find B-52s much much cooler than R.E.M. And in fact, a lot of people... There's a you know people think that the downfall of IRS was to have the, the uh, REM success because when they started having success they started trying to you know make a blanket uh, uh, you, you know decree over all the other bands that you know this is the direction we're going in we get have to have this slick kind of, you know more you know, I don't know, something something uh, with the ability to have commercial success uh, 
I'm, I'm a little foggy right now. I had to have my COVID shot yesterday, so my head's a little foggy up. I don't ramble and stutter too much. But, uh, yeah, the, the REM was always thought of as the downfall of IRS records. Yes. Well, it was a bit of a strange one. So then when you did Dark Continent, which was your kind of the first album, did was that quite a good was that a good experience for the band? Did that feel like you're on a the so-called honeymoon period? Um yeah, Dark Continent it did. Towards the end of Dark Continent, they started putting a little bit a little bit of screws to us, but we kept and we were in the studio at the different times we weren't there, so they wouldn't they would miss us and and pulling all those tricks and we were able to get away with it on that. But we had a little bit of freedom still on the on dark continents and uh uh oh, hold on one second okay i'm sorry i just have to take a break here i'm getting really foggy i don't know if you can edit this out or yeah like no that. that's absolutely fine i had a i had my COVID uh, jab on uh, monday and about five o'clock and then the next mm-hmm. night the following night i got absolutely hammered with with um I was just wiped out completely. I just, um, yeah. I, I had the chatter and well, teeth and, and the, the chills and then the sweats and then the headache and then dry mouth. I couldn't, um, mm-hmm. I was complete. But you've just had your second one, did you? Yeah, second one yesterday. So I'm just starting to get hit with them today, all that stuff. And, and it the, it's getting me this kind of fogginess that um, where I'm kind of losing my words here. So Yes. Well, did you um, want to... Is this going to be all right? Do you want to sort of say, let's pick it up tomorrow or something instead? Um, let, let's try a little bit more and see if I if I pick it up. If not, then we'll just drop it and start do it again tomorrow. Yes, that's absolutely fine. It's 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 no problem. I you know I couldn't have related to that until I had my experience, and then I thought, oh, actually, yeah, I just felt I felt really fragile. Actually, I did feel like actually, yeah, this is quite hard going. Exactly, and. Um, yeah, I just, so did you, yeah, did you just have the, which one did you have? The Astra? Pfizer. Yeah. No, the Pfizer. I'm kind of pleased to have done it, but I was a bit surprised because I just thought, oh, yeah, that's fine. This, that hasn't had any effect on me. And then four in the morning, I was like a complete wreck. <laughs> and and <laughs> I'm looking for paracetamol to um try and numb the pain. But it was, you know, luckily yeah. the next day it got a bit better, but then that was it really. Yeah, good. So, so you were within that band period were, were absolutely sort of doing it um 24/7 weren't you during the very early 80s period Yeah we got we yeah, our rehearsals would sometimes be you know from noon noon till 8 or 9 at night and then uh, uh recording sessions would be from 5 in the afternoon till 5 in the morning uh so and and then our tours were always low budget ones to save money, so so we would uh, drive you know eight hours a day every day and on our tours and uh, it was it was a it was a full time job. It was very difficult, and IRS was never known for being real generous to their bands touring or giving us per diems and money to live on. So we were you know living basically in poverty and tour- touring in less than poverty. And uh, and having to make do, and it, you know, so you know, we did there many times. We got very sick on the on the road, and and it was it was difficult. That's for sure. 
Yes, because it's interesting because most British bands, um, they break up for various reasons. Mostly they have that five-year narrative, which you probably can relate to. Um, well, if not relate to, but you know you know probably a lot of bands who break up after five years. But one of the reasons a lot of the British bands break up um, is often when they say, oh, we went to America to do a tour and then we came back and broke up. And it's like, it just finished the band off. You know, it just, I don't think anyone's quite ever from the UK is ever prepared for what happens in America. I think they kind of hope it's going to be the land of, you know, gold, I suppose, and a yeah. big financial reward. But yeah. actually, there's so much touring and then sort of, yeah, you know, just rough. Touring and driving and, and yeah, little hotels and, and uh, you know, trying to save some money. Yes. And, and then, um, you know, you play a show and then you need to do publicity, you need to talk to people, do interviews, you need to talk to some fans and, you know, even let your hair down and party sometimes with them. And and so it's just so little sleep. And, and when we have so little sleep and you're so tired, you just don't have your wits about you. Everybody starts any flaws or any risks in the band just become magnified. And yeah, and resentment start and uh, and that's exactly what a big, a big thing, a thing that breaks up bands. That's kind of what, what happened to me as well. I had a lot of issues, you know, drug things and eating disorders and stuff like that. So the road really, really pounded me. And, um, it was after that tour, last tour I did for dark continent that I, I was, I actually hospitalized and, uh, and then, you know, and then there, that's when, you know, Miles started saying, well, maybe we should, you know, Bruce is like not what, the, the type of stuff we have, for, you know, that should be for this band. You know, he's a, it's got some too many demons or whatever. So that's what started that whole ball rolling was, was actually after a long tour. Yes, which must have felt, um, I suppose at the time, you know, one just kind of has to roll with it. But looking back, did does it feel... Do you feel kind of disappointed with with what happened in that kind of that year, basically? Yeah, abs- absolutely. Because I was at the time, you know, I was involved with Call of the West that album. I, you know, I did a lot of writing for Wall of Voodoo. I always been a major contributor to the lyrics and music of the band and the sound of the band. So after writing some songs that got us to a certain level and just got us some popularity and, and doing all those tours and just laying it all in line for the band and then start working on Call of the West, be involved in the writing of several songs on that and then to have this kind of thing start up where I just said, uh, you know, I got to go. And then and then the album comes out. I don't get credits for two or three songs that I, I co-wrote, including the, the, uh, Call, of the Call of the West record. And uh, and then they end up having a lot of success with commercial success with Mexican radio. Then uh, I was yeah it was it was upsetting you know because I was living in poverty living on back living on the streets and they were living large and uh, <laughs> and it 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 was a it was a, a punch to the gut for sure. Yes, it must have been horrendous having that experience because I know that, yeah, it must just have, um, yes, been really hard to navigate. So then how did you navigate out of that kind of period? Because having spoke to quite a few people... Well, you... I, I... Yeah, the, the dream, I mean, there was some really good positive things that came out of that period. I kind of did a reset on myself and started pursuing sounds and things that I that were appealing to me more at the time. Uh, like I said, working with Wall of Voodoo, 
it got to be where I felt felt like with the IRS's influence on on a few members of the band, um, how they were, you know, pushing for a certain sound and songs and stuff like that. I felt like it was getting a little commercial for me, and I wanted to express myself different ways and hold true to my roots. And so I, you know, did a few things around town. I did a little glam band called Black Cherry at the time. Then I then I I did a thing. Uh, for quite a while that I actually got my brother involved in was nervous gender. And, uh, so we did, you know, a couple of years of, of nervous gender together. And that was really fun. That was a very free kind of arty kind of music that we could just, we were just free to do our own thing on. It wasn't so structured and, and there was no limitations on what you could or couldn't do. It was a very, one of the most freeing bands I've ever played with. Uh, and, and I even did, you know, I being friends with Stiv and and Brian James and stuff like that. And one time when uh, when uh, Lord's the New Church came out here uh, without Dave Traguna, they were to do some publicity stuff. I convinced them to do a show uh, as Lords of Voodoo, and so we did a, a show in L.A. Uh, where I played bass, basically Lords the New Church. We did damn songs, Lords the New Church song. I think one Wall of Voodoo song, but it was it was fun stuff. Yes, because at the time, Nervous Gender, you were in the same sort of bracket as bands like S SPK and um, Instruz and New Baton, Barton. God, I always mispronounce that, don't I? The German band, <laughs> Einstruz and New Oh, Baton. yeah, yeah. And Psychic TV. Einstruz and New Baton, yeah. Yeah, that's so much well better. That's so much better pronounced. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you had that kind of, you went You went veered that way in, in the sort of 80s, didn't you? With with sort of much more avant-garde exactly. kind of music. That's a, that's, yeah, exactly the type of sound that I was getting back to. And it was definitely much more in line with bands like uh, Einstruz and New Baton and uh, Spest, not, not necessarily Specimen, but uh, psychic TV uh, stuff like that. In fact, Nervous Gender did shows with both bands. I uh, uh, I bought and Psychic TV in on the West Coast here, and uh, we actually did one show with Einstein I Botten where they uh, started the curtains on fire of this <laughs> with their power tools, and and almost almost burnt an old venue down. And it was the last time they ever had rock shows there again. Yeah, that would have just messed their insurance policy up, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Health and safety would have gone out the wind. Because during, you know, because it was kind of interesting, because in New York, you'd, there would be in that sort of CBGB's world and Max's Kansas City, and there'd, there'd been, you know, like bands like Johnny Thunders and, and the, you know, the Heartbreakers. And then there was the sort of psychobilly scene as well with um, the Rock Rockettes and then bands like the Stray Cats came yeah. along as well. Do, were you kind of influenced or kind of curious with that that kind of particular world that, that sort of yeah, sprung? Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. I love that sound. I mean, it wasn't anything I played at the time, but I, I love some of that Rockabilly stuff. I was listening to a lot of Gene Benson, Eddie Cochran, around that time, even Elvis and stuff like that. So, you know, and Ray Campy, who just passed away. I was definitely, and I was actually friends with Slim Jim and some of those guys from the Stray Cats uh, in the early days. So, so definitely a sound that I liked it. Um, I, even in, in Ravens Moreland, the band that I do now, that I've been doing for the last 20 years, that definitely incorporates like rockabilly, psychabilly sound into there. It's kind of a mashup of, 
psychobilly, industrial, and and uh, and post punk, death rock, all all in one. Yes, we do love a bit of death rock, actually. Did you? Um, I mean, musically, you obviously. I mean, even though you had those kind of demons, you also were incredibly prolific, kind of going from sort of drums to bass to keyboards. So, you know, you you obviously have got a gifted side creatively. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, and that was the other thing. Just just how my brother had convinced me to drop the drums and start bass because nobody in our neighborhood played bass. Uh, same thing in Wall of Voodoo. Him and Stan had been talking for a few weeks and or about a month and messing around with some, some sounds. And then so we started playing it, and he's like, hey, Bruce, I have, I have an idea. I want you to play keyboards <laughs> and, and, and not so much bass or go, you know, half and half. I go, yeah, I'm down for it. So, so I started playing keyboards, never played keyboards in my life. And, um, and then, and, yeah, so I just started just practicing and practicing and writing songs and developed my keyboard style and found it, found it my, my favorite method for writing songs, um, keyboards which is it was just fantastic um and then he, and then i also was, was singing i had never sang before i never sang in wall of Voodoo. i never sang in any band and then in ravens moreland i actually had a singer and this, two or three weeks before we were supposed to go in our studio and to do our first record and so i had to kind of get myself going on vocals uh in short order so in about a month, I... During the 80s, it's kind of interesting because we had the kind of... In the UK, we had that... that I'm sorry about sticking with the 80s, but, but there'd been the, kind of the, the indie pop world that we had with bands like the Smiths. But then when they broke up in 87, you know, the world of ecstasy came along and there was a lot of kind of that, that kind of dance scene that everyone wanted. And then they, that morphed into the, the kind of Seattle grunge scene. But, but in America, we had the kind of big bombastic sound that was kind of people like Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel. But then you had that LA kind of hair metal world. Did you... Were you kind of into any of that kind of scene at all? Because you had been in it, sort of the rock band. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was funny because we it did kind of all get blended into one in the mid '80s, where you would, uh, you know, you would go to a glam rock club, hair club, and you would see all the same kids that were at the the night before at the death rock club, or you know, and stuff like that. It was all mixed up at the time. And yeah, I, I actually did a band with uh, Paul Mars called from L.A. Guns called Black Cherry that, that I'd mentioned, and it was kind of a hair band. It was very, I didn't last very long, and I only did it for a couple of shows. But yeah, so I knew all those guys, Motley Crue people and uh, Guns N' Roses guys. They were all friends of mine. Um, but but and even though I would go to the clubs and and listen to some of that. The music to a certain extent, I, it wasn't. It didn't speak to me enough to go way into that realm and and play that type of music again. I felt like I had already done that in the in the early seventies or you know ten years previous, and I didn't want to return to it. Yes, quite. Because you did a, a fantastic collaboration, didn't you? The Sky is a Poisonous Garden. Oh yeah, with yeah, that's uh, with. Uh, me and Johnette wrote that song. Actually, you would think that I would have written the, the music and sh- and heard the lyrics, but it was the other way around. <laughs> Did you, I mean, at that stage, were you getting more confident? I mean, I know you also, 
you know, there were other personal issues going on. But did you start finding yourself having had a few years away from the wall of voodoo, you know, the, you know, having that kind of distance? Did you start to feel a bit more confident in your own ability? Yeah, I always had confidence in my ability. I but I but I, I but I was just such a mess. I mean, I I really I really struggled hard with e uh, eating disorders and heroin addiction and uh it just kind of it it, it was always uh, omnipresent in my life. It was it was always in the background in my head no matter what I did. It was always tempered with the thought that I'll I can never really go that far until I can slay these demons. And it, unfortunately those demons took much longer than even the eighties or early nineties to overcome. It was, wasn't until 1998 when I finally was, you know, got off of heroin and, and got help for the eating disorder and all the other issues going on in my life, depression, stuff like that. So, uh, so it was always, yeah, I was confident, but it was a temp, a very tempered confidence. Yes, because I did this interview with a woman called Tanya Pearson, who's been in, you know, she was in various bands that never made it, but she's been putting together something, a kind of oral history called Women in Rock, and she'd sort of mentioned that she'd become an incredible junkie and alcoholic and then hit absolute the rock bottom and you know, eventually there was nowhere to go, you know, apart from sort of sort of having, you know, lots of help. Did you also have to sort of go to the bottom before thinking, right, I can't, you know. I've oh, got... yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, I had a serious, very serious bottom. I, I was uh, living on the streets. I was selling heroin with balloons out of my mouth to, you know, cars that would pull up in downtown L.A. I was sleeping on the streets. I didn't have a place to live. I was, you know, I was homeless. I was in and out of jail. I did, I did a, a thirty-day stint, a sixty-day stint, a ninety-day stint, a six-month stint, and a year stint in in jail here in L.A. and in the uh, late later, uh, in the mid to later nineties. So um, when I finally did get off everything, I had just gotten out of doing a year in the L.A. County Jail here, and uh, and then just started getting a, a little more serious when I got out of there a little more focused on, on slaying those demons, which I eventually did. Yes. So did you have to sort of have some rehab or some serious therapy to think, I just can't go next time. It's going to be, it's going to be. Yeah. I mean, have, for me, it was, yeah, for me, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a therapy or anything like that. It was just, I just hit so rock bottom. I was sick. I had hepatitis B, C, and A. <laughs> Every hepatitis there was, and I was, you know, I'm, I'm uh, five foot eleven and almost six foot, and I weighed maybe 129 pounds at the time. It was, I was a wreck. So, so um, after that year in jail, you know, I, I did get some therapy. I had to get some help. I, I went to some meetings and group meetings and stuff like that. But um, ultimately, that really wasn't all that did it it was just i had just hit complete bottom and i was just willing to to sit through any kind of pain or anything like that to, to stop you know, stop hurting myself that way yes because obviously it must have been horrendous was your brother also having the same kind of issues during that period with sort of his health well, it's funny because you know it's it's you can always point to someone like me who's strung it on heroin and say that, that person's going to die. That person's you know. But when somebody just drinks alcohol and drinks a lot of it, uh, 
no one it doesn't raise too many red flags because it's so widely accepted and uh and so mark's disease flew under the radar more where he, you know he just drank more and then but eventually you know i survived my my heroin addiction hepatitis c but he you know he didn't with his with his alcohol crikey that must have um that must have been a kind of difficult time because you'd obviously cleared up but then he went through the past you know the end of his kind of life so did that did that sort of keep you fo- were you able to keep focused and not sort of drift back again into your demons uh it was it was very difficult that was really tough times uh he I had been clean or clean and sober and not even drank any alcohol for several years. And then, uh, when he, uh, was sick, you know, I was going back and forth to Paris cause he was in living in Paris, uh, for several years and got sick in Paris. And that's probably him being so far away, kept him out of my sight. I didn't even, re- I didn't realize how bad he had gotten, uh, living over there and, so it was it was difficult. It really it did set me back. Some it was very a very hard time in my life for sure. Yeah, God, it must have been. And did you manage to keep a kind of relationship with your mum at this stage as well? Yeah, yeah, we're still I'm still very close to my mom. I've always been very close to my mom. You know, she's had her demons as well. She was a heavy drinker and a single mother who was abused by a lot of men when I was growing up, but. Uh, you know, we survived it, and and uh, we're, we're we've always been very close. God, that is quite a story. But then, obviously, after you know, we turned the decade or the millennium, really. You you really focus on your the solo work, and then that's kind of what's kind of been twenty year project, really, isn't it? Yeah, that's the Ravens Morning thing. Is just it's 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 just it's everything I've always you know wanted to get to in my life and i feel like i've uh i feel like everything everything i've done is kind of focused into this one one project and and it's it's a lot of freedom i mean it's maybe too much freedom since i write everything and i pretty much play all the instruments on the record and sing everything it's a uh, it's a little too much but of 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 all me but i sometimes i i long for some collaborators but but at the same time the freedom i get from it to just go any place and not be able to not have to have any one sound be able to go from sounds of rockabilly to industrial to punk to post-punk to have all those elements and and be able to change gears on at any time in any record or any song is just is a, a lot of freedom a lot of joy Yes, because you you know you released the single "Black Hole Kiss," which is really well, very this year, which sounds fantastic. I mean, did, did, was this were you working on much over the the past year and the sort of the anniversary of the lockdown? I mean, because I, I know some artists have kind of struggled, and the couple said actually they quite enjoyed it because um, it was less distractions, and also they were planning last year, luckily, to be um, yeah, sort of. You know, they'd done a you know an album, and was slightly set, settling down for a year of just kind of getting it together for the next project. How was your sort yeah. of year? Well, I I think that uh, I I fall into the category of the people the people that kind of took advantage of it and and got a lot of things done that they they could have done otherwise. Early early on, 
I was, you know, I, I can't support myself just with music. I have a, another career that I have to do that actually that, that feeds into music. That's the only way I can produce music right now is to, is to work. And I'm a hardwood flooring contractor. So I bust my ass, uh, you know, doing hard labor in the day. Uh, so in the beginning of the pandemic, I was still very busy because I had a lot of jobs that were already booked that they people decided to follow through with. And so I was doing that. Uh, but as the pandemic went on, the jobs uh, got fewer and far between, and it afforded me the time to start doing some of these uh, songs and, and productions I wanted to do. So the first thing I did was kind of put together, kind of finished up, uh, a record that I've been working on that was uh, Death of the Guardians of the State, which is something I released just in the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, probably wasn't, you know, uh, uh, some of the songs on there were just kind of thrown together. I, I wish I could redo them, but there's three or four songs on there that I, I just think are great. I got those out there, and, but but those are kind of a hodgepodge of things where I didn't really have the time uh, that I had just you know, been working on while I was also working very hard and, but I just needed to get them out there and get them out of my hard drive. And so I released that. But then at that point I could really start doing what I wanted to do for a long time and just really concentrate on the production songwriting. And, and so I've got this new record, almost you know, it's a, two, two more songs I got to write and, re- and record, but it's pretty much done. Uh, that Black Hole Kiss is off of, and and, and this set of songs and this re- recording, I'm really really happy about it. Just it's everything I've always wanted to do. Had I had the time, and now I finally had the time, and so yeah, I mean, so it kind of worked for me the whole pandemic. Yes, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> I know it's been sort of a mixed blessing, really, isn't it? I, I've sort of, yeah, everyone's had to sort of do whatever they can. Do you kind of miss playing live? I did. Did that sort of has that sort of been difficult, not being able to sort of go and perform? Yeah, very much. Yeah, very, very much. I mean, we, we have been able to do some live streaming. We've done several live streams on Facebook throughout the pandemic, which which helped. But uh, but there's nothing like a live audience, and that's something I, I miss very, very much. In fact, just the last couple of days, I've been trying to get a hold of some of the local booking agents to see who's going to be doing shows and trying to get in that early group of shows that are going to start happening in L.A. probably in the next couple of months. Yes. And do you, I mean, because obviously, I mean, with your sort of band and also the history of the band, has has it been the case that you've found more people discovering you over the sort of the last few years? Because I noticed, as I was doing this show, I've noticed that when things kind of happen at the time, you know, we just assume it's going to be like that forever, but it's not. It quickly changes, and then you just get on with the rest of your life. And then sometimes people start to, not just because of rose-tinted sunglasses, but sometimes look back and think and reappraise it, but in a kind of a, not a critically negative way, but just the critical way of thinking actually that was much better than I remember you know because I've I've sort of mm-hmm. I've kind of gone back to some of the 80s 
and listen to stuff that I missed the first time and realise actually there's a lot of good stuff that just because it was difficult to get hold of, for one thing, you know, you just couldn't just mm. say, oh, yes, I've got this, the new album by so-and-so's come out and I've just listened to it. Sometimes you thought, actually, I have no chance of being able to get it unless I go and spend money on it, which I'm not going to take that chance. Because yeah. we've all made that decision to buy a record because a, a critic says, this is brilliant or it's the record of the week mm-hmm. and you buy it and you get it home and you go, God, I hate this record so much. <laughs> I wish I'd not bothered. So it was kind of tricky. So anyway, then life gets on and then you get into your 20s and you get that gig and then you get into your 30s and then you get to an age and you sometimes look back and you think, oh, actually, there's other stuff in the 80s that happened that, you know, and also I have to say, if if a band looked like like a new romantic band, I didn't really like them. And if it if they dressed in a certain way, I probably didn't like them. And then I sort of, I'm not so bothered now. <laughs> So I'm not so bothered. I totally get what you're talking about here. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So I just wondered if you've also found people kind of coming and sort of uh, rediscovering some of the stuff that you've done throughout your career saying, wait a minute, this is this is quite amazing. You know, I I can't believe I missed you the first time. Yeah, I've been getting a lot of that. It's funny you should mention that. That's 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 another big aspect to the uh, the pandemic that I found is that people have had time to kind of dig, uh, take a deeper dive into the, the you know music that's been around them the whole time. I think what happens is in the normal hustle and bustle of you know of you know everybody's working day and and, and their, their their the time they have to spend on leisure and art and everything like that is very limited when they're working a lot and. So there's just just out of an economy of 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 decision making, they kind of just kind of gravitate towards what people say is you know that's good, or they, they just kind of you know do a cursory checkup of of the the things going on around them. And I think uh, this has made you know this has kept people at home. They're not going out to clubs. They're not they don't have their attention, their focus taken away from from you know, art and things in the, that they important in their life. So they're sitting at home, they've heard these songs so many times. Now it's time to take a little bit deeper of a dive. Now it's time to look at this artist that you've heard a lot about. You maybe heard one song, but you really didn't give him a chance. And so it's like, been like that with movies, you know, movies that I just really didn't give a chance. I heard maybe it was good, but uh, you know, I just saw one scene and told the people I saw it or something like that this is time to really actually watch that movie or listen to that record or listen to that song. So I think that has unearthed a lot of, uh, you know, things under the rocks that, that got swept under there. And, uh, and it's done well for me. I've been getting a lot of, a lot more, uh, you know, hits and plays and stuff like that. And people asking me for interviews and stuff. So yeah, it's, it's been kind of cool. Yes, I could imagine. Because the one thing I noticed, I mean, it's interesting that you you were sort of more focused as an artist on the kind of future, you know, as in you you were often, you know, recording new material. Because I think a lot of people just feel a bit burnt out and probably don't know where to go next. But obviously, you you're not having that problem. But the the other thing that a lot of people have get into is wanting to archive what they've done, both musically and also sometimes visually. And I noticed that last year. I think it was last year, it could have been this year. There's been quite a lot of books came out on sort of, I don't know, 
There was there was one about the tech Texas is the reason, which is a book of photograph photographs of the punk scene in Texas. And there was another mm-hmm. one about Boston. There was another one about punk, post punk, new wave. Again, you know, like a photographic archive of that scene from mm-hmm. the late seventies and early eighties. I just wondered if you, with your life and and the amount of stuff that you've done, have have sort of wanted to look at some somehow of archiving archiving it because yeah and and that's also uh, with a lot of these documentaries that are coming out now too that you can watch on netflix and stuff is you know there's a million documentaries on bands uh photographers stylists uh you know i just watched something on vivian westwood the other day and and it's just it's, it's just all these things where you could, and then punk scenes there's washington i saw some of the washington dc punk scene the boston scene uh uh, uh, you know, San Francisco, just, yeah, there's any scene there is, there's almost a documentary for now. And then, and then books like in the Mikey Bean book, uh, uh, Phantom's book about the death rock in LA and stuff like that. So yeah, there's been a lot of books come out, a lot of documentaries that are documenting the, uh, micro scenes in, in different cities and stuff. And it's, it's great. You just learn a lot more and, Yes, well, it is because because um, I noticed this quite a five years ago. Suddenly, there was there was films on sort of, and yeah, there was one on the chills from New Zealand, then one on the go betweens. There was one on the wedding present, another band from London, um, from Leeds, who did an album called George Best, which was very Pacific. And then uh, there was also one on the Dolly Mixture, which is a very small band. And then a couple of weeks ago or months ago, there was one on this band called the Nightingales from from England and Robert yeah, Lloyd. Them, uh-huh. and, and again, there was a documentary about them that came up on, on Sky Art. So, and, and I sort of I did an interview with, you know, one of the people who was putting that together and wondered how or why these are kind of happening. And he's saying, well, the people now who are in their 50s have, the, you know, people like me, I suppose, or us, have got more resource to make these kind of documentaries and films. Plus also mm-hmm. there is this, there's an interesting story to be told. I mean, it might not have a huge audience, but there is definitely an interesting story. And if, and if it's, it just kind of requires someone's creativity to put it together. So I could imagine with yeah. bands like, you know, The Wall of Voodoo and, and sort of What Happened to You and various other members, it does make a good, you know, it's quite interesting. And also musically, you know, you, you did sort of release some classic songs as well, which obviously, you know, people will find fascinating. So I just wondered if you'd started thinking about your own, you know, being able to tell your own story of what happened. Yeah, well, actually, I've been working on a book. It's I, I've been I've been doing it for maybe six, seven years. I really need to just finish it. But I get, you know, I get I get to a certain point and I'm, then I, I start thinking. Then I start dissecting what I've written and I rewrite it and I just need to just stop doing that. And, and then the other thing going on is too, is that, is that since I write, produce, record, um, and do all, you know, and release my own uh, material. Uh, so in order to finish that book, I have to take time, a lot of time away from writing and doing music. So it's really, and, and I always seem to my natural default is just, just go back to the music. So I really need to focus though. And I have to have so many people over the years telling me when's that book going to be done? When's that book? So 
that is definitely i think once i finish this next record that i'm doing i'm not writing anything new i've i have enough material out there i've got you know so many songs i can't even couldn't even count them all that are out there you know for anybody to listen to but so i think i'm just going to cut off the writing for quite a while until i finish the book um after this next uh record gets released yes and when is the next out when is because you've got the single which has just come out black hole kiss when does when are you hoping the album comes uh, out we'll probably do is release one more single from it um in the next uh three to f- three weeks or so and then the uh, album will probably be i'd say I, it might be a little spell longer maybe about th- three months from now but but there'll be one more single release much sooner and then the album will probably be about three months that's it there you go and, and hopefully sometime this year you might be able to play some live dates which would be amazing yeah which would be yeah, fantastic absolutely. and do you and is it the case that you're able to quickly pull together a band if you need to at that moment think right i've got some live dates where's some you know because you've played with a lot of people haven't you yeah, yeah. I have one drummer, Linda LeSabre. Uh, she was formerly of, uh, of My Life with a Thrill Kill Cult, and she's been with me for a long time now. Uh, so she is my mainstay. The only thing we, we uh, switch out sometimes is that we'll have a bass player, who bass player slash keyboard player uh, who plays with us. And right now, we don't, we don't have that. Um, we've just been... Uh, writing and and even doing live streams streams of the duo uh and so so uh when so yeah when i when i start booking some shows again i'll get that third person and i have you know a pool of several people who want to play with I mean do that fill in that void so yeah so yeah so that would be something i do uh-huh this would be amazing god i hope that comes out soon no if you were to sort of be, a, if you could have, I know this is a bit of a corny question, so if you could have said something like to a younger self starting out, like 16, 18 year old, and you thought, with all the wisdom that you've developed and experience, is it, you know, what would be your kind of a key, couple of key kind of messages you would say, or, you know, bullet points that you say, look, you might not want to hear this, uh, but I'll just well, give, I'll give you a few top tips and it's up to you whether you, you know, can be bothered to, yeah. to remember them. Uh, yeah, well, let's see. For me, I mean, it just, uh, you don't have to, you know, don't have to be so technical. Uh, figure out, you know, figure out, I don't, geez, let me see, uh, let me rephrase it. You know what? I might have to get back to you on that one. I don't know if, I, if I'm in the uh, right frame, frame of mind with, the, you know, with this cover shop right can think of very inspirational things and my like I said it's so cloudy right now but um yeah let me let me get back to you on that one if you if you could have you know said something to a I don't know 16 18 year old self starting out in the world of kind of creativity and music and art and everything you know what what sort of key advice or not advice but you know the thing that you might have just wanted to whisper in their ear that you've kind of learned over the the decades well i just uh you know the the ability to compromise especially when you're first starting out um is is really one of the key ingredients to make yourself able to be to collaborate uh 
So, so that's that's a real key thing for me. Is just you have to kind of tuck your ego in and and uh, and learn how to collaborate and listen to others and 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 stuff like that. That's that's pretty big if you want to be in a band. Uh, but the other thing is, kind of on the flip side of that, is that you want to stick to your, you know, if you if you have a style, something that's true to you. Yeah. You 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 can you can really stick to it, and if. If that style is maybe out of vogue or is in vogue now and goes out of vogue, it always comes back around. So if there's something that's inherently your style, don't stray or try to chase other styles because, uh, you know, I've found that, that, that certain scenes or sounds or genres and stuff like that, if you just stick to it, it and, and maybe just kind of add to it later, even if it kind of goes out of style, if you just kind of add some pieces or adapt a little bit, but kind of keep your roots, it, it always, it's what just, it's cyclical. It just comes back around. So there's that. Um, the other things I've learned is <clears throat> take care of yourself. You know, uh, it's, it's, I've learned that you just, it's, it starts with you. You've got to take care of you yourself. You're the machine that drives the music and, and, uh, and nothing is more important than, you know, your health and well being and stuff like that. So, you know, that's just, you want to go for the longevity. It's very, very few and far between where bands just, in, or artists just uh, break out on the scene and start, you know, make it, you know, and it sometimes takes a long time. And, and look at me, I'm much older. I'm, and the band Ravens Moreland is getting more popular now than it ever was when I first started. So, and that, that's kind of a project that was always, you know, near and dear to my heart, even, you know, in the wall of voodoo days and everything, I always had this other kind of side that I really wanted to expose and I just stuck with it. And you just keep yourself available, keep yourself adaptable and, and, but keep your style and it it comes back around. Yes. Did you, what's a good advice? Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, I suppose it's difficult when you're younger being nihilistic, quite nihilistic or self-destructive, is it, it kind of sometimes also taps into sort of an image of what one thinks you should be doing. And especially during some of those previous decades, it's almost like a badge, badge of honour not to look after yourself. So that's quite a big learning curve, though, isn't it? Yeah, and but, you know, it's, it's probably, I mean, I've learned that people, you need to kind of, experience some things and and purchase you know you know maybe it's not easy playing music and touring and all that stuff and then there's there's a lifestyle you, you kind of need to incorporate a little bit of that kind of let yourself go a little bit especially in the beginning when you're younger you want to let your your hair down and and uh and stuff like that but just try try not to get carried away just realize that it's uh that's just one aspect and it's really not the most important aspect or, or, or an important aspect whatsoever. It just, uh, and you can create that image of yourself if that's what you want without actually, you know, I've seen a lot of people kind of luck the part, uh, and, and not really, you know, trash themselves too much. So, so it's a fine line, you know, it's it's hard to say, but it's definitely a fine line there. Yeah, and do you find that you're fi- you're picking up sort of new, you know, fans and and uh, yeah, sort of people listening to the music 
you were much younger. You were sort of discovering you for the first time, as well as people who might have remembered you from Wall of Voodoo. Because obviously, I think what I was reading the other day is that music is quite, you know, young people identify with music quite differently now than what we probably did back decades ago, because there's more things available. But at the same time, there is that still kind of escapism that music gives. And I just, you know, was wondering if with the curiosity and with the internet now, people being able to sort of find, you know, those kind of threads back to a kind of so-called, you know, gothic post-punk period, and then sort of sort of finding you now and sort of being intrigued what you're, what you're up to. Yeah, I mean it's 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 an amazing thing that the kind of technology and the access that that pe- the kids have now to you know every sort of music and you know you you can at least sample things without having a lot of money. You can just go on Spotify or have an account and, and figure stuff out. But um, so yeah, I mean it's, it's you're more likely to kind of get involved with just what's happening with your peers. Uh, Right around the time, just like with me when, when I was younger, you want to hear kind of what maybe not exactly your peers, but just that one generation ahead of you. You want to kind of see what see what they're doing. That's kind of what influences you the most. But you know, after a while, that you just you kind of need to step out of that genre. You need to kind of start listening to other things and start start finding the roots of the music that you're you're enjoying you got to find where that came from and dig dig a little deeper and sometimes when you go dig a little deeper like that it really helps you to figure out the hierarchy of 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 sounds and 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 genres and stuff like that and it kind of helps you fit that into your own you know amateurize that into your own your own you know, playing abilities and your your sensibilities about music and stuff like that. So, yeah, very important and very, very cool tool that kids have these days. Yes, absolutely. Because obviously, you know, the last decade, you've been as prolific with, you know, you know, ten this 10 years than, than any decade in your whole life. So obviously you must have been getting a better, you must be getting a better balance now and a better focus of being able to be much more productive as well as much more sort of following through on a project than perhaps some other decades. Yeah, and, and part of that too is just, um, you know, because I produce everything myself, I you know, I do it with through Pro Tools, uh, you know the program Pro Tools. So yes. I, it's just and it, it's just getting to know the system. It just you just it's an ever learning, ever encompassing system. It just it just keeps growing, and there's just so many tricks to the trade. And uh, it's in the in the beginning, you just you know it's it's just really you just you only know what you know, and and you make mistakes and you learn from your sounds. You, there's things that take a long time to do that you learn how to kind of shorten it or cut it out later on. So it allows you to just get to the music quicker. So a lot of that is just a, a learning curve, you know, learning how to produce yourself, learning the system you're producing on and, and learning how to get to what where you want quicker so that you have more time to, to feel creative rather than just to feel like you're just a, you know, a student, you know. <laughs> God, yes, I know. When you're sort of fumbling around, 
Googling the problem, uh-huh. trying to work out what, which steps to take, and um, it can be very frustrating. Do you still feel, I mean, because cause I've sort of noticed with quite a lot of people who are still making music, there is this kind of enthusiasm and optimism that the best work could still happen, as well as feeling really pleased to have survived you know, the world that has been sort of rock and roll at times. I just wondered if you were sort of feeling like when some, the, the, you know, the best work that is still to come, basically. Yeah, it's exactly how I feel. It's, uh, it's like I said, when I learn more things and, and you know, and I, I purchase more, you know, better equipment and more updated things, um, I know that I can, I can unlock you know, more, more things that are in my head, more ideas I want to do. You know, I have a, an idea of a sound I want to create and it used to be very hard to get there and I would have to settle for something halfway between. And now it's getting to the point where, where when I want to record something, when I have an idea, I can get there quicker and I can get to, you know, maybe 90% of what's in my head. And whereas before it was maybe 40 or 50%. So uh, so in that sense, yeah, there's better things to come, and I and I feel optimistic about it because I I know I'm taking care of myself. I'm going to have some longevity here, and I'm learning my my craft better, learning production better, and so I can achieve those those goals to uh, you know to, to get it, get the sound where I need it to be. And so in that sense, yeah, much much more optimistic. Yes, and with your you do because you. You were saying you tour with a couple of people, but at the moment, mostly it's just with, is it just Linda, who's in Death Ride 69? Yeah, Death, she was in Death Ride 69, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult. Uh, she is my mainstay. And then I've had uh, various bass players along the way. Um, you know, on the recordings, I play bass, but live, I like to have a bass player uh, that maybe switches to keyboards. Uh so during the pandemic, there was no real need, need to uh, carry a full band to do some live streaming and stuff like that. So because uh, we do we do have backing tracks and we play live. I use uh, you know rhythm machine and synthesizers in the backing track. And in those synthesizers, there's you know a lot of deep bass tones. So I can get by doing live streams without a bass player. So right now we're kind of you know, starting to think about playing live again. So there's a pool of people I can use locally. So that's something I'm kind of working on right now to kind of get an, another bass player worked into the mix. Yes, absolutely. And does this, because um, I know we're all very optimistic, it's March 2021. Um, I mean, have you, are there kind of, I mean, I seem to get the feeling that everyone's hoping that from September onwards, you know, there is some sort of, not normality, but the new, whatever, I don't know, the new thing that um, kind of like it's going back to school, isn't it? It, it? Have you got sort of plans for this year to do live shows or are you? Yeah, are... I was, yeah, I was just reaching out to some bands. Um, I think some of the bigger bands, like I was just speaking with uh, Buzz from My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult a few minutes ago about, you know, doing some shows coming up. And and if I feel feel like bands like that that are it's much a, a bigger production to go out and and uh, and tour, and things have to be planned perfectly. Uh, there's more people going along, so there's the budgets are kind of high, and they have to make sure they make enough money. I think a lot of those bands you can just wait till 2020 
2022. Right. Uh, so um, is what I'm saying, but there are, I think there are several bands, big bands that had shows uh, already planned that are kind of moving along with some of those shows here in, in LA. And uh, I think in, uh, I've heard in, in May, I'm, I'm sorry. And, and uh, you know, and again, yeah, end of May or June, some outdoor shows and stuff like that. And I think, and I see, you know, on Facebook, I've seen some uh, events popping up for this month where some outdoor shows, local shows and stuff like that. So it's kind of going fast now here in Los Angeles that there's a lot of vaccine here and that that's so many people had COVID that there's so much immunity now in, in, in Los Angeles that it's kind of moving real fast towards towards opening up, playing again. And uh, so, yeah, so I was, I've been actually talking to promoters the last couple of days about booking some shows. So I think we'll probably start doing some shows, at least locally in the Los Angeles area, by, uh, you know, July, June, end of June, July, maybe. Fantastic. God, this is, this is optimistic stuff. And I think you mentioned that you've got another album coming out. Were you finishing an album or a yeah, I'm. I'm actually just before you called, I was just uh, recording, uh, recording one of the songs to try to get to the. You know, I'm trying to get to that eight or nine song threshold. I've got five songs that are absolutely finished right now. A Black Hole Kiss being one of them, but uh, there's five songs completely finished, and so I could actually do an EP. But I'm just, I'm just going to see if I can can um, write two or three more songs over the next month and get those produced up so I can get a full uh, LP out there. Fantastic. Well, this is good. Well, look, that is, that. Um, I just wanted to get that last kind of bit, actually, but I think I've got enough now, so I won't keep sort of hassling you. But that is fantastic. Thank you ever so much for your time. Um, You're welcome. Thank you, David. It's been brilliant. And what I'll do when I put this out, um, I can send you a link and then you can always, you know, post it on your um facebook page and you know people can have a listen and and have a you know whatever comment if they want That's so great. that would be fantastic but thank you again for your time do you prefer going as bruce or, or ravens moreland by the way or um just bruce bruce if we could put bruce ravens moreland i think a lot of people you know i'll just I, a lot of times i do that so people know that that it's one and the same you know if they, they think it's ravens and then the, the, the ravens is in there so yes but uh yeah yeah, I'll do that. You could be Bruce, Bruce, and then quote in quote in quotations, Ravens Moreland. Indeed, look, we're going to leave it there. We just get into more chat, right? That a big thank you to Mark Ravens Moreland from the Wall of Voodoo, but also various other projects. As we spoke about, a big thank you to Mark for giving me the time for that over two days. And under some, you know, a bit of con strange conditions after the first session because of the COVID jab. Anyway, all's well. Um, if you want to contact me, this is David East, or you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86show. Um, yes, keep it positive and nice, obviously, because frankly, I don't want to know any negative stuff. And um, yeah, these have all been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86show. And again... Yes, fill your boots if you want to, and if you don't, I don't care. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.